Man, it looks like some people already left for spring break. How many are looking forward to leaving on spring break? I think some people already, already checked out of this place. Um, how many are just right on the edge of leaving? You're right there. You're close. Are you, how many are leaving today? How many are leaving tomorrow? Okay, how many are leaving Saturday? How many are not leaving at all? There we go. They got the home people here. <laughs> anyway. Hey, Chris up in the booth today, uh, Superman up there, Chris Joseph. I'm taking a different direction than what I shared, so just turn off the, you can put a pretty picture up there and uh, turn off the slides. I, I got a little bit different thing I, I want to do today um, than what I, what I sent to you. Um, obviously, our world is... Uh, taken a turn, and it's very hard to capture the turn because I find, even for myself at this day and age, um, retaining information is like trying to catch Super Bowl post-game confetti with tweezers. It's just like a million things are falling, and I can't even get one of them to lodge or become personal. There's so much happening in any given week, and it just shoves that item off the screen of my heart, but I will say the events uh, in the last 24 hours is are new events to your generation. My generation did not grow up with our eyes on the domestic problems of the United States. We grew up entirely with the awareness of uh, global movements, not globalism, but global war and the threat of nation against nation, not power structure against power structure. So you guys have not really had to deal with, I mean, Afghanistan's just kind of this distant, bizarre concept. Most of you, you know, were not, some of you were not alive or you weren't really cognizant at 9-11 and certainly not in the early 90s during uh, Desert Storm and when uh, um, Iraq invaded Kuwait and uh, threatened much of the stability of the world through that. And the nations, uh, the United Nations and NATO and all those things formed uh, a response to uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein. And those are just kind of foreign concepts. It's like when I was a kid, um, I wasn't around during Pearl Harbor. I had to read about it. I saw the, the footage of Pearl Harbor. I was born in 62. Even Vietnam was somewhat of an odd... I remember watching the nightly news on the black and white TV, and they had a little death count every day of the people that died in Vietnam. Anybody old enough to remember that uh, on the nightly news and Walter Cronkite telling us how many people died that day? Um, But to this point in time where we live, which we're closer to Christ's return than when I was sitting in college uh, as a student. We're closer, obviously. doesn't take a rocket science to understand we're headed toward his return, so obviously we're closer. But the events are beginning to stack up, and the Bible is becoming more real to me. It's making more sense to me than it ever has before. Like, I never thought, how could the whole earth um, coalesce around a mindset when everything is scattered through the information age and we can't even keep up with our neighbor. How would the whole world become, stand at attention of something? And I watch it with this whole COVID thing and vaccinations and masking and all the language. I've watched every nation kind of stand at attention and rally around one concept. So I'm beginning to see how events can really bring the earth to its knees. And I don't mean in a sense of of worship or humility before God, but bring it to its knees as far as 
the idolatry of humanity trying to you know shake shake its fist at at Almighty God. But what we're seeing now uh, with happened in Ukraine with Russia, and for your whole life, Russia has meant nothing to you, nothing. Um, just like when I was in your seat, the Middle East meant nothing. The Middle East became relevant in the early 1990s when Iraq invaded uh, um, Kuwait. And then the whole idea of terrorism and all that emerged out of that season has dominated the really the middle to latter half of my adult life. You're far more aware of terrorism. That wasn't even a word uh, when I was uh, in college, the word terrorist. There were some bombings in Ireland uh, the Catholics and the Protestants were killing each other in Belfast, and you'd have these bombs go off in these civilized uh, nation of Ireland, people killing each other over religion, but it still was uh, kind of distant. But now, and then Russia was the big thing when I was a kid. It was the Soviet Union. You know, it was the idea in the Bible that this idea of Magog in the Old Testament, uh, this prophecy uh, that Moscow north of Jerusalem would be the invading army. And then it all kind of faded when the uh, Gorbachev tore down the wall after Reagan told him to tear down this wall and the Soviet Union broke into all of these separate countries. You had Russia, but the Soviet Union uh, came to an end as we understood it to be. And it was shocking because it was impenetrable. It was, it was dominant. It was unbelievable communism and the Soviet Union. Man, we were, we were scared every day as a kid that the bomb was going to fall from the Russians. But then that all kind of dissipated. The Middle East kind of emerged in Russia just really since 1989 until now for 33 years has just kind of been there. There's been Putin and all that stuff going, you know, but he's just kind of a character, a political character. But the tanks crossed over last night and now people, uh, since we met in chapel yesterday, civilized people are, are dead in the streets because of the rockets and the bullets and the bombs. And I was thinking about its impact on this generation to alert us because we've been so focused on domestic issues. Now, I will tell you this. When I was growing up, my parents wouldn't walk across the street. My parents' generation, in general, would not walk across the street to spit on uh, uh, any. They, they wouldn't solve a need across the street for nothing. It was foreign missions. Let's go to the world. America fell apart under my parents' watch. Your generation has picked up the baton and has taken serious uh, the chasms of justice and care for the country. Now it's all mixed together into some weird modern application. But your generation though, the nations has kind of just become live dead movements and we go there into obscure spots and share Christ and it's powerful. But the idea of the movement of nations in preparation for Christ's return. I just want to read you two passages and then take you to a text in the Old Testament. This is just out of Matthew 24, and I hope I can read it uh, here in this beautiful, beautiful um, light. It says here, yes, I can. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, don't let any, it's the lighting, friends. It's not my eyes. It's the lighting. It's absolutely the lighting. And I know I just won't let go of my little Bible because it makes me feel young. I've been preaching from little Bibles my whole life. 
you know, if it was up to me, I'd take it out of my back pocket. But that one's, I like literally, I can't even see one thing in that Bible anymore. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars. See, we often think we're going to hear of rumors of wars. But no, we hear of wars and rumors of wars. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation. So we focus a lot on the lawlessness and the lovelessness of our world, especially our domestic setting of America. And I'm going to read that out of 2 Timothy chapter 3 now. What Paul wrote about the end times as he described this loveless and lawless state. He said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. Many translations say realize this. What is it? What's the importance of realizing things? It's simply having the warning and the realization that it's coming dissipates the fear. It takes away the surprise. It doesn't mean that it doesn't take courage to face it. But if you are warned of it ahead of time, there's a preparation that naturally happens. Most people, if you don't read the Bible, all of this stuff feels like insanity. But if you read the Bible, all of it's predicted. And if you understand that the, that the scripture has predicted this and laid forth the path and the definitions of what we're seeing, then you have to also know that with the predictions come the promises of the Bible. So if the predictions are true, the promises are true. That's, that's the pattern I think the Lord is after, that if we believe the predictions and we begin to see it, then we have to believe the promises of things yet to be. It says here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you should know this, Timothy, but realize this, understand this, be forewarned, prepare, deposit this into your spirit, don't be caught off guard, that in the last days, difficult times will come, turbulence, uncertainty, ambiguity, surprise, it's going to come. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and totally ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. The house of the Lord, marriage, nothing will be considered sacred in the last days. They will be unloving and unforgiving. People won't let things go. This will be the dominant trait of the culture as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus. We got this weird irony that we hold of revival and culture being transformed by the kingdom. But we also got these other pages here in the Bible that describe the deconstruction of culture, the isolation of humanity, selfishness of humanity, and all of this things that go from the petty to the belligerent to where we see people as we did in Minneapolis a week and a half or two weeks ago with Deshaun Hill. Somebody walks past him, we, they bump shoulders and within a few seconds, Guy fires three shots at him from behind his head. Seriously? So 
I know that's not isolated to Minneapolis. That can happen in cornfields in Kansas, which it does. It probably did last night. It's not, it's not an urban issue. It's a human issue. But the scripture is describing this, this whole new world. You know, It's not as fantastic. Now, this is not a downer. I, I just want you to stay with me, but I want us to understand in light of the, the invasion into Ukraine yesterday by Russia, or last night as we slept. Again, characterizing the lawlessness and the lovelessness, that micro experience, spiritual experience of neighbor to neighbor, stranger to stranger, framed within nation against nation. So you got neighbor to neighbor deconstruction, you have nation to nation deconstruction. All of it is in preparation for Christ's return. It says they will betray their friends. It says they will be unloving, unforgiving. They will slander and have no self-control. They will be cruel and they're going to hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They're going to act religious. They will, but they will reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Wow. I know in this world of tolerance and relationship and bridge building, how do we swallow that? We're actually to avoid people. I don't think we avoid sharing the gospel and bringing the kingdom and alleviating suffering to everybody. But building bonds of friendship with religious people that clearly know the truth but reject it and live this way, you got to guard yourself, friends. Got to guard yourself from those deep bonds of connection with people that are not like-minded in your heart for the kingdom. We're in relationship with them because we're their neighbor. We alleviate suffering no matter who it is. We bind up the brokenhearted no matter who it is. But as far as doing life with people that reject the kingdom of God that know better, the Bible warns us about that actually. So stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of the vulnerable. And it goes on and on to describe the conditions neighbor to neighbor. So I just want to allow this moment of what's happening in the nation because I, I can't play it out. I don't know where this is going. Is this going to just kind of fizzle like an Afghanistan story? Or is this going to gain some momentum throughout Europe and involve the United States of America in a way that we probably didn't see coming as we thought we were getting COVID behind us and getting the pandemic behind us and trying to normalize and stabilize. And now we have the Russians who are maybe trying to restore the glory of the, of the USSR. And that may be what Putin's all about. He was a former KGB agent uh, who watched his, the glory of the USSR uh, crumble 
separate, deconstruct, and I think those of his generation probably think that their mission in life is to restore it, but the only way it's restored is with death and bloodshed, coercion, oppression. Many Christians are in Russia. Many Christians are in the Ukraine. When the Soviet Union collapsed in the late 80s, a flood of beautiful Ukrainians and Russians came to California, to Sacramento. We became the number one destination, like the Somali community in Minneapolis. Sacramento was the number one destination for the Ukrainian and Russian people. And I remember the Christian lady that started it all. And the U.S. State Department identified ultimately Sacramento as the best landing place for the Ukrainian-Russian population. There's, there's maybe a quarter million. Uh, my church was filled with Ukrainians. Um, how many know Max Vasilchek? Uh, Max is Ukrainian, and his family was in my church. And they, his, his mother was born in the Ukraine and father in the Ukraine, and they were part of that diaspora that came to the United States. So I have dear friends that this is affecting greatly. But my point is just this, is that uh, don't let it catch you unaware, but you need to drill down and be highly aware of the movements prophetically in Scripture. I encourage you to read Matthew 24, 2 Timothy 3. Get it down in your spirit. Um, don't just focus your entirety of your life on just the domestic issues of the United States of America. We need to have a grasp biblically of the movements prophetically and the things that are prophesied by Jesus in the, in the New Testament writers and even in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, that shows us these times uh, were coming and it teaches us how to be prepared for them so that we're not, not shaken. I want you to take your Bibles, if you will, go to the 17th chapter of the book of Kings just for a moment here and then we're going to pray. Um, I just want to give you um, uh, an insight into the 17th chapter. This is, I, I kind of spoke too long. That was kind of an introductory thing on what's happening in our world. And I'll pick up this message. Um, but I just want to bring three things to you about uh, this chapter, Second Kings, or First Kings 17, First Kings 17, uh, on this chapter that deals with kings and widows, kings and widows. And you have this spectrum of these two. And, and the, the man of God is caught in between kings and widows in here. And, and, and God is working in his life. It also starts with, it simply says, Elijah, who was from Tishbite in Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be neither rain uh, or dew for these next uh, uh, few years, it says, until I give the word. And this was a seven-year uh, drought. And so Elijah is sitting with the king. I'm going to preach this in five minutes. Elijah was sitting with the king. You sit with the king, you're drinking from the golden goblets, you're sitting around the finest wood table, you're sitting in a palace when you're sitting with the king. Now, he goes from the setting with the king, and it says, then the Lord, God spoke to Elijah and said, go east and hide yourself. It's very hard to hide yourself after you've been seated with the king, and you have the ear of the king. You probably think, man, look at my life. My life is on a trajectory of ministry and leadership that is second to none. I've already been in the presence of the king. I have the ear of the king and I'm young. I'm new in my prophetic ministry. Then the Lord tells you to go hide yourself. What a difficult move spiritually to hide yourself after you've had the euphoria of hanging with the king. If I was to break down this text for you, I would show you several times where it simply says, the word of the Lord said, I think there's seven references to the word of the Lord, which means that Elijah 
um, spin a season where the only leadership he had in his life, the only direction he had in his life was the word of the Lord. Why is that significant? Because it sends him to the brook Cherith. And the Lord says, I'm going to feed you with ravens. They're going to bring you meat and you're going to drink from the brook. And when you drink from the brook without a utensil, you're down on all fours and you're drinking like an animal out of the brook. Now picture the man had been sitting around King Ahab's in his presence, probably drinking from a golden goblet sitting around ornate, on ornate furniture in a palace. And now he's on all fours drinking from the brook Cherith like he's a, a deer and a scavenger that picks the flesh from a carcass, a raven is bringing him his food. What a reversal. What a season this is. Why would the Lord reduce Elijah? Not because he's trying to humble him from his previous assignment, but he's trying to prepare him for his next assignment. Sometimes we look at our life in relationship to where we've been. And we have to see our current life in relationship to where God is taking us. Because at times we are sitting with kings, man, and we're, we're living large. We're traveling. I, I could sit up here and brag for 30 minutes about the places I've got to be and preach and do in my life. And then God takes you into seasons where you're reduced, where all you have is the word of the Lord. Now let's get to the next assignment, not the previous assignment. So he's with the king. Then the Lord takes him to the brook Cherith. Ravens are feeding him. He's drinking water on his hands and his knees like an animal. Try to reconcile that mentally. Try to organize your life and the dominoes and the sequence. Like this doesn't make sense. Then the Bible says the brook dried up. The brook dried up. I have, and the Lord said, arise and go to Zarephath. In my life, I, I have found that the Lord always does two things for me. He provides some type of crazy prophetic nudge for something. But he also creates a practical circumstance that the brook dries up. The job's over. The budget dried up. Um, they didn't need me. This or that. The brook dries up. Now, I don't move necessarily because of natural circumstances, because sometimes the brook dries up, I got to endure. But I also don't simply move simply because this crazy, in my life, I'm just telling you, in my life, I have found the word of the Lord says, and the brook dried up. I had a kind of a combination of this prophetic and this pragmatic thing going on. I said, okay, Lord, I can see your hand in this. So the Bible says he went to Zarephath and there he met a widow. I got to do this in a minute, a widow. Why is it significant? First of all, her past is hell. Her husband's dead. Her present is hell because her cupboards are empty. And her future is hell because her son's about to die. Now when you meet somebody whose past, present, and future is hell, 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 and that storyline dominates them and swallows up their existence. And the Lord, through Elijah, he walks up to this woman and says, the word of the Lord is saying, go make me some bread cakes. And she says, what? My husband's dead, my cupboards are empty, my son's sick. 
You're asking me to do what? <clears throat> now, most modern ministers will go, whoa, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't know. I didn't know, I didn't know. Uh, let's, let's manipulate everything. I gotta figure, uh, because I'm unaware that I'm asking you to sacrifice against the backdrop of a jacked up life. Where does Elijah get the guts to say, I hear your story, man, but the word of the Lord says this. Not because he sat at King Ahab's table. It's because just prior to this assignment, he was reduced himself to living off the word of the Lord. He learned that the word of the Lord comes true to him personally so that when he professionally begins to minister, he has the authority to stand against what seemingly looks like, man, I got my message in the, I didn't know my audience. I'm sorry, I didn't know my audience. I didn't know who I was talking to. Because to call this broken, angry world to repentance, remember, the good Samaritan poured wine into the wound before he poured oil. He made the person beaten and robbed hurt because the wine stung. Ow, ow, ow. Why would you put wine into the wound? Because I have to kill the bacteria. So when we're dealing with a broken world, it's very easy, friends, to back off once we hear the horribleness of their story, we back off the demands of the gospel because we think it can't work for a person like this. They're so mentally messed up because their husband's dead, they have no food in the cupboard, and the son's about to die. How could the gospel of sacrifice and repentance work here? Where did Elijah look at her without flinching and says, I hear your story, but the word of the Lord says this. We have to do that. We have to look at people that are broken and say, I, I hear your story, but the scripture, the word of God says this. This is what the word of God calls us to. Now, Elijah went through that transformation process. So are you. So am I. We're going to go from Ahab's table to the brook Cherith to Zarephath. And don't compare your life now from where you've been. Your life is always in preparation for where you're about to go. So when he was eating from the beak of a raven, drinking water like a deer. He didn't understand Zarephath, but God did. He was preparing his life to have authority and confidence in the word of God. Let's stand together. We got to stop. I went too long. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we love you today. We thank you today, God, for this, uh, this little window, God, from the classrooms and all the activities, Jesus, of our campus, Lord. We just receive the word into our heart today, God. We pray for the nations, Lord Jesus. Help us not to be afraid when we see the movement of nations. Help us not to be afraid, God, when we see the belligerence of our neighbor, Lord. 2 Timothy 3, Matthew 24, and many other passages address this. It prepares us. And now, Lord, for every man and woman in this room, if they're a guest today, no matter who they are, Lord, when you take them from the king's table to the brook Cherith, help them to walk through the process because Zarephath is coming. Powerful men and women 
who will bring the word of the Lord in healing and resurrection to the most desperate stories in the world. The most impossible situations. You're preparing the balcony and the bottom floor. You're preparing the man with the mic and the man in the sound booth. All of us, God, are being prepared for Zarephath, God. Continue to help us in Jesus' mighty name. God bless you guys. Carry the word in your heart today. Have a great, great day. God bless.